0: I've been on a conversation with an expert, as he bumps up against the wall and realizes, I don't know everything I need to know. Our text is John 2:23 23 through uh, part of 15. Feel free to follow along there in your own Bible as, uh, as I read mine. This is sort of background here at the beginning. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, and then he believed in his name, What about Jesus here, when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Alright, I'm going to pray. My good Father, we thank you for this word. And I thank you to these students. And I pray, Spirit, that you'd be gracious to open our hearts and minds and to help us see more clearly uh, what you would in this word. Help us to see Jesus and our need for him more clearly. We pray these things... In your name, Jesus. Amen. Right, I have a little poem for you. It should be inspirational at this time of the semester. A lot of you. I'll pick this one. The little blue engine looked up at the hill. His light was weak. His whistle was shrill. He was tired and small, and the hill was tall. And his face blushed red as he softly said, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. So he started up with a chug and a strain, and he popped and pulled with might and main, and slowly he climbed, a foot at a time, his engine coughed as he whispered soft, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. With a squeak and a creak and a toot and a sigh and an extra hope and an extra try, he would not stop. Now he neared the top, and strong and proud he cried out loud, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He was almost there when crash, smash, bash. He slid down and mashed into engine hash on the rocks below, which goes to show that the track is tough and the hill is rough. Thinking you can just ain't enough. So uh, that's Shel Silverstein at his very best. I love Joe Silverstein very much, and you're thinking, "Wait, that's not the story." 'Cause your story of this is the good cool American story, if I just try hard enough, I can climb any hill. If I just keep chugging along, I can do it. I can do anything. Actually I think Silver is a little more honest than we are, and on to something. Um, because it's our experience, almost all of us, at some point, we're chugging along, climbing along, climbing along, think it's I think thinker can, then all of a sudden you just this momentary obstacle or something happens to you think, wait, wait, wait a minute. Am I slipping? Wait, wait, what's happening? Wait. They think know you're sliding down the hill, and you student hash, or maybe it's just semester hash. Like, I never thought I could fail a class. I never thought I would have to completely rethink my major. I never thought I could waste the whole semester socially, and start, start all over again. You name it, it's, we experience failure. If you haven't, it's coming. And uh, it, it's hard, but it's true. And uh, tonight, as we study Nicodemus, we'll find someone who's an expert who uh, climbs the hill. He's an expert. He's good at climbing hills. He's, he's good at knowing things. And when he meets Jesus, all of a sudden he's thrown into confusion and even despair. And tonight we're going to talk about all those things: confidence, confusion, despair. Because in the person of Jesus, they all sort of come together. They really do. We think of them as completely opposite things, but often in our life, we're vacillating wildly between them because we put all our confidence in ourselves and in our own ability and our own expertise. And uh, tonight, there's something here for you that are super confident. I've never done a class. I'm on top of everything. Super confident about this Jesus thing. I know about it. I got guy down. Or for you who are confused, you don't know what to do, or who Jesus is, or what Christianity is, or how you're doing in life. And even for some of you that feel like, I'm crushed. And I don't know how to go forward. a little despairing. I'm not even sure I should be here tonight. This is not the kind of place, the kind of people I normally hang out with. I'm not sure I belong. We're going to say there's something here for all of us. Because when we see Jesus rightly, we find He's the source of humility and hope. When we see Jesus rightly, He's the source of both humility, not overconfidence, but also hope. You're not crushed. So tonight we're going to see how we can't. I'm Mr. Negative. We can't. He can. And then what we should do. So first, we can't. And uh, this thing sort of sets up like a play. It's wonderful. We have this sort of forward or the setting of the stage in verses 23 and 24 and following. Jesus is experiencing wild popularity. He's been all doing what he does, which is healing the sick, um, taking care of the broken, and uh, man, He's incredibly popular. Everyone wants to follow him. The text says Jesus knows what's in the heart of people. And what they want is not Jesus. They want his stuff. They want his things. They want his power. They want his results. They don't want him. So he doesn't entrust himself to them. They have some sort of a little faith in him, but Jesus knows it's about this thick and this wide. And that's the setting. Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. Interstage, right? Nicodemus, who happens to be a man, and uh, Nicodemus is pretty well qualified. He's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. That means he's sort of the people's champion. He's someone that loved God or tried to tried to live a very strict life. Everyday people were looked up to him as a moral exemplar. And as a ruler of the Jews, that means he was in with the powerful elite as well. Uh, he was sort of a man of the people and a powerful elite. And super well respected. When Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Yeah, Jesus is being a little sarcastic there in verse 10, I think. Um, I think it's verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? But well, I think he's saying, really? People look up to you as this great teacher. He is well esteemed as a great teacher. He enters at night to meet with Jesus. And, uh, and he says, uh, Jesus, uh, we know that you're a teacher come from God because of these things you're doing. I think of the scene. He's a great teacher, well respected. Jesus is this Galilean uh, ragamuffin up and walking through the countryside, place to place. And uh, Nicodemus is sort of holding court it would seem, and, it, and he walks in and says, "Jesus, we know you're a great teacher comes from God." And Jesus says, paraphrase, "You don't know what you're talking about." You think you see me as a teacher of man from God? I'm telling you you can't see anything. In fact, if we're expecting an interview, what happens is Jesus from the moment grabs hold of the conversation and Nicodemus never recovers. For his whole life, actually. If you follow the story of Nicodemus and John, he never recovers until the very end when he figures out who Jesus really is. So uh, Jesus says, in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see, and all the things you can't do, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom. If you know what that means, verse five or six. Truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Think of Amos as someone who had been very confident that he was good enough for the basis of his labors to enter God's kingdom. That when he died, he would have been in God's merciful presence. And Jesus is saying, you won't enter, and you can't see it. You can't even see it unless you're born again. And uh, that means you can't start over. This very definition of born again means this is more than just turning over a new leaf. You can't just start over. Jesus is requiring, in verses 3, 5, 6, 8, a new birth. A new, all new beginning. Uh, And like birth, think about birth, it's not something you can do on your own. It's not something you do to yourself. In other words, you can't make it happen. And uh, this is something that Nicodemus really struggles to comprehend. You see it in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his womb and be born? Think about that for a second. Very gross. All right, don't think about it anymore. Let me think about that again. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but I don't think he's being crass. Uh, Nicodemus is a very smart man. I don't think he's being ridiculous or crass. I think he might actually be dead serious. We don't know how old he is, but you can be thinking... I'm I'm an old guy. I've lived half my life or more. How am I supposed to start all over and be brand new again at this point, Jesus? How is that even possible? And he struggles to comprehend it. Jesus acknowledges this in verse 9 and 8. Like, you're marveling. Verse 9, how can these things be? He just doesn't get it. He doesn't comprehend it. And uh, this is not the way we think of pleasing God or entering eternal life. We think, for the most part, If we're good enough, we'll get in. In our culture, we actually believe if you just die, you go to heaven. It's called justification by death. Um, All you have to do to please God is die. And uh, and that's very popular, but it's not at all what the Bible teaches, or pretty much any other religion in the history. Um, So Nicodemus is really struggling to comprehend what Jesus is saying, because not only does the Bible not really hasn't helped him understand this. He hasn't read it well. But deep down, we're not predisposed to this. We think if we work hard enough, God will be pleased and we'll get eternal life. Now, I've witnessed three live births in my life my three children's live births. And I can pick all kinds of adjectives uh, to describe those. Amazing is one, otherworldly is another one. It's like something that aliens would do. Um, I'll have to say it's humbling in lots of ways, this gift of life you have, but humbling in another way that a, a comedian named Jim Gavigan makes clear. Uh, a woman can, this is his words, a woman can grow a baby inside her body, then a woman can deliver the baby through her body, then by some miracle, a woman can feed a baby with her body. When you compare that to the male's contribution to life, it's a little bit embarrassing, really. Um, and I feel that too. <laughs> I'm there, I've contributed almost nothing, and uh, this amazing thing happening, my wife's doing all the work, I'm a pretty terrible encourager, as some of you know, Not much, not much help at all, and it brings up another word to describe it, helpless, I really feel sort of helpless, but I am not the most helpless person in the room, who is that? It's the infant who can do absolutely nothing. In some ways, it's the the very, very most important moment in its life. Hasn't even begun yet, hardly. And it can do nothing. It's completely helpless. And uh, in some ways, Jesus is saying, if you want to know eternal life, if you want to see what God is like and what he wants to bring you into, Nicodemus, you have to go all the way back there. You have to become like a baby, being born again. You have to start all over. You have to be helpless. Yeah, I mean, I'm a confused now. You, you can't make that happen. God is not after your best life now. He doesn't want the best of you. He wants you to have an all-new life. And that's because the life we're living is just not good enough. And if you think it's not that bad and that you can, we can't. That's the point. If you think you can, then um, I'd just give you a simple proof test. This is a test of whether or not you can. Uh, when Jesus' opponents came to him and really questioned about his authority, some of them said, hey, what's, what's religion all about? What's this religion all about? What's the most important things? And they came to this agreement. So if you think you can live the life that God requires of you, I would give you this test. Go try. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself you think you can live a life pleasing to God? Go do those two things: love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength; love your neighbor as yourself. Go do it. Then come back to me next week and talk about how you can't do it, but because you can't do it, you can't do it. The good news is uh, Jesus can, and He does, and uh, He does all kinds of things in this text that are really encouraging and give us hope. Uh, First of all, He He can speak clarity. With his words. Uh, Nicodemus is confused. <laughs> for, for, the, for the teacher of Israel, he's confused. How can these things be? He yeah, asks in verse 9. And into our confusion, Jesus speaks. And he makes clear what God is like and what it means for us to know him. Uh, in verses 11 and 13, through 13, we read this. Um Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. You don't receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things. You don't believe them. If I tell you heavenly things, you won't believe that. No one descended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, hey, I've come all the way from heaven, because that's where I'm from, to make clear to you what is God's will, what is his character, and how you can know him. That's what he's done. He's come down and spoken to us to reveal what God is like and how we can know Him. He's given us His words Uh, to that end, to clarify what God's like and how we can know Him. uh, And if it's not clear enough for you, Nicodemus, how, how this is done, I'm right here in front of you conversing with you. If you think religion is some kind of esoteric, you've gotta figure out the strange mysteries or I've gotta work hard enough to take this, Nicodemus, for you. God came in the flesh and sat down in front of a guy and said, This is how you know eternal life. Listen to me. He gives us his words to make it clear. who's uh, seen a three D movie? Who has been in a three D movie and taken the glasses off? You, know, of course, you would, of course. Um, so, um, so with the glasses on, the, the, the film is filled with color, depth, texture, things that look better than life. Uh, with the glasses off, what do you see? Blue-red pixels. Like this blurry, distorted, fractured, pixelated jumble mess. And so that's a pretty accurate picture of what it's like for us, my everyday experience, to walk through life trying to figure out what we're like, what God's like, and how to figure out eternal life on our own. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not that there's not a picture out there and that there's not a story. The story's been given. And I'm telling you what it is right now. Uh, the problem is, you won't put on your glasses. That's so what he says in verse 11. I tell you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you won't receive it. In other words, Jesus saying, "I am telling you right now how you can have life. I'm telling you what God's like and what you're like and how you can know Him." But you're doing this, or taking the glasses off because you don't want to do it that way. Um, but the good news is He gives us His Word so that we can know clearly what what it's about. Also, He's at work powerfully. He's at work powerfully uh, so that we can be born again, and uh, you know. Uh, this is where Nicodemus is really struggling. How in the world can the whole man... Do I got to go back in there and come out? No. I don't get it. Uh, and Jesus clarifies in verse 6 through 8 what it's all about. You need a spiritual rebirth. You're marveling at me because you think this is utterly impossible. And your right. Because you can't do it. But that doesn't mean, verse 8, that God is not at work through His Spirit doing what you can't do. Verse 8... The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, God is at work through His Spirit, blowing throughout this world, doing things. And we don't always understand how He's doing it or when He's doing it, but when we see the results. And we need to realize, just like with the wind, it really exists. It's really working. God's at work by His Spirit doing this. And one of the best illustrations of this is one of my favorite commercials of the last four or five years, an Old Spice commercial. And uh, some of you probably know this one already as I mention it. Is this commercial with this uh, sweet little mom? She's in the laundry room. She's uh, giving an advertisement for like dryer sheets, talking about how nice they smell. All of a sudden. Uh, Terry Crews burst through the wall riding a, uh, a jet ski, shouting, "Old Spice body spray is so powerful it sells itself in other people's commercials." Uh, Old Spice body spray is so like power, and he's flexing his muscles, and his head explodes or whatever he normally does. But the line that stuck with me is, "Old Spice body spray is so powerful it sells itself in other people's commercials." And I thought, "This is genius. <laughs> this is genius marketing." Um. But in some weird way, that I hope's not heretical, the spirit is like Old Spice body spray. <laughs> you can't see it, but you know when it's around. like Axe body spray, which probably a friend of mine today is that Congress should get together. So they can agree on this and get rid of that stuff. Um, but you know when it's around. You can you can sense it. It's clear that it's there. Um, and it's so powerful it does itself in other people's commercials. In other words, it's at work, it's invasive, um, God is doing something. And what he's doing is pointing to Jesus. Specifically, he's pointing to Jesus' work on the cross. That's where Jesus goes in verse 13 and 14 and 15. He's talking about the Spirit, he's talking about the Spirit. It's really complicated. Nicodemus is drowning. And Jesus at the end says, let me make it really clear, this is all about who I am and what I have to do. And uh, he says in verse 13, I'm the Son of Man, I've descended from heaven. And it says in verse 14, I'm going to ascend again, but all my way, I'm actually going to go to a cross. He doesn't really talk about the cross, but he talks about what he has to do in such a way that it's really clear in the book of John that he's going to the cross. Uh, when John uses the verse, or the word, lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He uses that language four times in, in the book of John. Every time he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is saying, one of the ways I'm going to be exalted, strangely, is I'm going to, to, I'm going to have to die on a cross. But it's not a strange accident. It's purposeful. Here, years before I go there, I know I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there purposely to do a work that you can't do. I'm going to bear sin and guilt there. And by this means, I'm going to forgive people and bring them into my life. Um, I'm going to provide deliverance for them, and this is the way by which I'm going to forgive their guilt. Uh, And this, verse 13, is the way that you can have eternal life. So Jesus can. He can make it clear for us what it's all about. He can bring us new life. He can make us run as God. And uh, at this point, I want to take a little shot at uh, a characteristic that often is a part of our group. And partly, sort of, the people in our tradition, and that is overconfident smugness. All right, so this is going to hit some of you like two out four. It should, so you'll be like, "What's he talking about?" Um, but it, it's the nature of Christians. This is really ironic. It's the nature of Christians, those who have been forgiven by God, to sometimes sit back and say, "I got this Jesus name, down. I got my act together." And that's bad enough, but it's even worse when you have no empathy for others or when in a group discussion or throughout life or your daily experience with other people when you think, like, why can't they get their act together? What's wrong with those people? How come they don't know that? What's wrong with them? And I think that's a deep symptom of overconfident smugness. So, to review, what exactly did you do to get to this position? What did you do to get all this knowledge? What did you do to become a child of God? Like a child, being born, you didn't contribute jack squat. Like really, you contributed nothing, right? You didn't die on the cross for yourself, but someone else did that for you. You didn't make yourself right, someone else made you right. You didn't forgive yourself, someone else forgave you. Uh, you didn't choose the family you were born into or the church that you contributed from. You inherited all those things as a gift. So don't be a jerk. I I am taking a shot. Because I know that person. That was me. Sometimes I'm still like that. But there's no grounds for it. Everything you've received, you've received like a baby that's been born. Which means you should be marked by a beautiful, deep humility and gratefulness and gratitude. You really should. We should all be marked by a wonderful sense of gratitude. I get to be alive. And I didn't do it. It's wonderful. So I'm going to do this last point really last. Really last. It really is last. Really quickly. Um, so we can't, God can, through Jesus, what should we do? Simply but, we should look to Jesus. And this is where he concludes his message with Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, look, when you look at me, you're going to see a couple things. You're going to see yourself like God sees you. You're going to realize, all right, I'll have my act together. I'm, uh, I'm overconfident. I'm confused. I, I can't do it. And that's good. It's good for you to see yourself as you really are because we are not prone to seeing ourselves objectively. Also, when we look at him, we're going to see our sin. And uh, this is part of what Jesus is talking about in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent... In the wilderness, so he must, so must the son of man be lifted up. It's kind of like an old story there. The old story is from the book of Numbers, where God's people rebelled, revolted. I tried to say rebelled and revolted at the same time. They revolted. Um, they revolted. Rebelled. Anyway, they uh, did admit the things. And um, God, sent, as a punishment, poisoned the serpents. And you think, that's strange. It was effective. And, um... When they were bit by these snakes, they perished. And when they cried out for mercy, God said, I'll give you mercy. And uh, the mercy came in the form of a golden asp. They were, Moses was told, okay, go build a, go build a, a golden asp out of gold and stick it on a pole and uh, walk around. And when people look at it, they'll be healed. Now, I want you to think about the process of that. You're bitten by a golden or some kind of fiery serpent, right? And you're in the process of dying. And you're bitten as a consequence of your sin. So you have a link in your mind. That happened because of what I did, my treason. My cure is to look at that. You got it? Like, God takes my punishment and puts it in front of me and I have to look at it. Meaning, the thing I look at reminds me of my sin. And that's the way this when we look at the cross. Jesus is saying, hey, if you really want to know what life is like what God is like how to know yourself how to know reality how to know God's love you've got to look at the cross when you look at the cross what you should see there is your sin we take a psalm that says it was my sin that held him there this is what God had to do to make me right God had to send the son to die for me when I look at Jesus on the cross it's because of my sin that he had to die I cannot look at what Jesus did without thinking of my sin. In other words, I have every reason to be humble. Right? If God's own son had to die for me, that's a good reason to be humble. Am I wrong? I think that's logical. But also, when we look at the cross, we see there are substitutes. Not just our sin, not just ourselves, not just what we've done horribly wrong, but we see God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, who took our place. And he did not have to. He chose to. So when I look at the cross, I see every reason to be humble. My sin put him there. But he didn't have to go. Out of love, he chose to go. Because he loved me. Man, that is every reason for hope and confidence. When I look at the cross, It has every reason for humility. And every reason to have hope as well. I'll close with the story. Uh, it happened a number of years ago. It was covered in Sports Illustrated, and uh, it's about a JV girl softball game. I like all kinds of sports, but I don't typically follow JV girl softball. Um, this was a remarkable game. Uh, it was between two teams, very different. One named Run Cali, and they were woman handling uh, this school, uh, inner, inner City Marshall College. Anybody go to the Inner City Marshall College? Before I disparage your school. So, um Marshall College was just growing into its middle school. And uh, this was their first year of having softball. And uh, that means they brought, that day to the game, something like five balls, two bats, three helmets, 16 players who'd never played a game before, and a coach who'd never seen a game. Well, Cali had not lost a game in two and a half years. And the score could have easily been 50 to nothing. When uh, the Marshall players arrived, these were the conversations that were being had. Which one's first base? How do, I, how do I throw the ball again? And they had no idea how to pin in the batter's box. They didn't know where the pitch was coming from. They knew nothing about the game at all. And that's when Bruncali did something amazing, something crazy. Cali, that hadn't lost in two and a half years, they offered to forfeit. You're thinking, wait a minute, Marshall was supposed to forfeit. The team that gets the snot beat out of is supposed to forfeit. No, Ron Cali offered to the forfeit. Uh, they hadn't lost in two and a half years. They were going to win in a landslide, and they declared defeat. Why? It's because the girls from Ron Cali's team decided it would be a much better use of their time to spend two hours teaching the girls from Marshall how to play. Man, it's beautiful. So, uh, and the, the Rincali, coach went and talked to the Marshall girls, and they were resolute. They did not want to quit. Uh, to quote him, they were willing to lose one hundred to zero, so long as they finished their first game. So they didn't want to quit. But the Marshall players finally decided that if Rincali was willing to forfeit for them, they should do it for themselves. And uh, they decided to adjust this once, losing was okay. And so then this crazy, weird scene happened. seventh and eighth grade girls all over the field from different schools teaching other how to run, throw, slide, catch, swing a bat. It was madness, and it was beautiful. And the umpires who had the rest of the day off, they stuck around to watch. It was like nothing they'd ever seen before. And uh, I want to tell you that this is very much like our life. And uh, what God has to offer to us. I have no idea what this is. Um, We're down 50 to nothing in life and love. We think we know how to play the game, and we don't know how to do it. We can't do it. And Jesus, who does it perfectly well, willingly forfeits himself for us so that we can win so that we can have his victory, and so he can teach us how to live and enter eternal life like, like we want us to, like we want to. But it requires us to be humble enough to quit. It really does. It requires us to be humble enough to forfeit, to give up, to lose. Are you willing to admit that you need help? Can you admit that you're down 50 to nothing with no chance of winning? That you don't know how to play. I mean, regarding being right with God and making life work, can you admit that? The invitation is to look to Jesus. To look to Jesus, who lived the perfect life, played the game perfectly well, and forfeited his life for you. And who gives you his victory. And, and when you do that, when that enters into you, when you take that into your heart, my faith, it, it does something to you. Not only do you get his victory, but you also get humility. Beautiful, sweet humility. And the confidence that God's at work in your life, giving you his life, making you beautiful like him. Alright, let's pray together.